Hi, my name is Katie Grigg, and welcome to another episode of Wicked Good Development, where we talk shop with OSS innovators, experts in the industry, and dig into what's really happening in the developer community. Excellent. And I am Sal Kimmick. I am the director of open source for AI DevSecOps at Escher Cloud. Really excited to talk about C4 modeling with Simon Brown today. Thanks, Sal. And I'm so excited that you're here as a co-host today. Hey, Simon, before we dive in, can you introduce yourself for the listeners at home today? Uh, yes, yeah, certainly. So uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Simon Brown. I'm an independent consultant specializing mostly in software architecture. So my, my background is a, a software developer working mostly for consulting companies. So we were building software either for or with our customers. Uh, and over the years, I, I've kind of done more software architecture training, software arch architecture workshops. And yeah, now I get to uh, fly, around and, uh, fly around the world and teach people thing, uh, things like my C4 model and uh, how to do software architecture in a nice, lean, lightweight, modern fashion, I guess. So yeah, that's me. Thanks for being here. A newcomer to the pod, Dan Kahn. Hi there, uh, my name's Dan Kahn. I'm a developer advocate for the Somatype. Um, before that, I was a developer for 10 years and also had a cybersecurity uh, interest as a hobby um, and I recently graduated um, with a postgraduate in advanced security and digital forensics. Excellent. Um, as we're talking about the C4 model today, I think to understand really what it is, I think it would be interesting to understand, Simon, was there a single situation or a set of situations which inspired you to construct this initially? And what were they? So um, thanks very much for inviting me along. I don't think it was a single situation. It was really like a, a culmination of things that happened over a number of years. So I worked in London for uh, a number of years, mostly for consulting companies. And if you want to grow a consulting company, you need more teams. And in order to have more teams, you need more tech leads and more architects. So I was part of the small team of people who would often go and teach software developers how to do architecture and tech lead roles. And eventually I took that training outside of the company and started doing as public courses in London. And during the public courses, we used to have this little design exercise where it would be uh, break the attendees up into groups of two, three, four people, give them a very simple set of requirements, and then ask them to go and design a solution and draw some pictures. And after that exercise, we used to present the diagrams, look at the diagrams, and try and figure out whether the solutions met any of the requirements. And it turns out that I couldn't understand any of the diagrams, and neither could anyone else on this workshop. So kind of trying to answer the question of the solutions actually match the requirements was almost impossible. So I kind of thought to myself, well, there must be a wet, uh, there must be a better way of doing this. And in the kind of late 90s, early 2000s in my career, I was a big UML user. So we used to use UML in pretty much all our projects. Uh, but UML usage kind of declined quite rapidly in the kind of mid to early 2000s. So what I did was I really started teaching people the method that I used to draw architecture diagrams when I needed to write documentation diagrams for our customers, because working for a, cons uh, a consultant company, of course, that's what you do. And that's essentially what became the C4 model. So it was just different levels of detail, different diagrams, and the C4 model is just really a formalization of that stuff. That's that's it, really. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. So I, I work a lot on observability. And for years, I've had to point people to C4 modeling for exactly that situation, actually turning them away from my own consulting work because they literally, I was like, you've asked me if I can solve your problem and you haven't given me enough information to know the answer to that. And so I think it's really important to think with C4 modeling, particularly having the different layers and levels of contextual information is I think what makes it 
unique to what was being offered at that time and what really makes it so powerful. So diving into that a little bit, sort of that highest level down to the lower level architectures, can you explain a little bit about what it is to dive into those models and a little bit about what audience each level would be most appropriate for? Yeah, certainly. So the the top level, level one, is called the system context diagram. So imagine you're in an organization and you're building a product. You want a diagram. The basis is this is the product we're building. Uh, these are our different types of users. So users, actors, roles, personas. There's a whole bunch of ways you can think about your your users and, and how they interact with the system you're building. And then your your product, your system is not going to run in isolation. It's always going to talk to other systems, whether it's security systems or credit card systems or knowledge management systems. So the, the context diagram basically says, what's the thing you're building? Who's using it? And how does it fit into the world around it? And it turns out it's, it's such a simple diagram to draw. And, and many teams skip over this diagram because they think, oh, everybody knows the context. And of course, for simple systems, that that's true. If you've got like two user types and you're talking to a credit card provider, well, it's easy peasy. But most enterprise systems, is not. it's not two user types on one system. It's like 53 user types and 140 different systems. And, and no one person has that set of systems in their head. So it's a great diagram for actually everybody uh, from non-technical people. Uh, so product owners, business users, sponsors, you know, all sorts of non-technical stakeholders through to non-technical testers, because obviously they need to know what the system is in order to test it properly, uh, through to us as architects, developers, infrastructure people, um, people looking at security and compliance concerns. So yeah, it's just like a really nice, simple starting point. And then as you dive into it a little bit more, how does it get a little bit more interesting and a little bit more complex? And what does it mean to have that capital V verification sitting inside of that model? Yeah, so uh, let me let me continue the story. So once you uh, kind of have that context diagram, you can now start to do the uh, Google Maps pinch to zoom movement on that system box, on that product box. And then you drop down to level two, which is what I call a container diagram. Now, there's an unfortunate clash of naming here with uh, something people might be familiar with, which is Docker. Uh, this has nothing to do with Docker, I'm afraid. Um, I, I kind of came up with this naming before Docker. So, I mean, I, I kind of had it first, but that's a little bit irrelevant now, I guess. So by, by container, all I'm really talking about is an application or a data store. So I wanted to choose a, a generic term to represent application and data store. And of course, I completely failed at that, but what's done is done now. So when you zoom into the, the system boundary, the, the container diagram basically shows you the set of applications and data stores that make up your system. So if you're building like a, a web-focused product, you might have an Angular JS front end or, or a React JS front end that ends up running in people's browsers, like a, a single page app that might be sending data across the internet to like a backend Java Spring Boot app or a .NET app or a Ruby on Rails app. So that's another container. And then you might be storing information in like an Amazon S3 bucket or a MySQL database schema. And, and really, that's what that second level diagram captures. So where the context diagram is, is asking the questions, uh, what's, it, what's the thing we're building? Who's using it? How does it fit into the world around it? Once you zoom into level two, now you're really looking at uh, questions like, well, what are the technology building blocks that we're going to use to build our system? What are those technologies that we're choosing? How are we partitioning responsibilities and data across those things that I'm calling containers? And uh, how do they communicate with one another? So we're talking about interaction protocols and stuff like that. So yeah, now when we get to this, now we've kind of lost all the non-technical people. And we're really focused on architects, developers, and, and people who want to start evaluating and verifying architectures. Right. So I think that this is so fascinating because 
We're working right now on trying to help a couple of open source projects with their threat modeling. And again, it's the same situation where you've asked me to help you, but I can't help you because I can't see what you want me to help you fix, right? And this visibility is so essential. And it has to be the kind of visibility for threat modeling. I need a kind of portable object that stores the information about the state of my system that I can then say, all right, let's give it a new condition, a new endpoint, a new platform. Does it still then work or is there a security concern or a uptime concern? So Dan, I'm really curious when we're thinking about these different forms of modeling and observing architecture, when we think about it with these different levels of context diagrams, does that prove to be very useful? I would assume it would be because it allows me to maintain the information that I need to hand off to my non-technical partners. But much more important for me is a proof of record that I have validated each of the security conditions that are possible for a specific architecture. And I find that fascinating. It is, absolutely. Um, I think the thing with threat models in particular is that they are used across the business. So it's a very similar approach where you could have people that are chief technology officers, but also CISOs, you know, information officers, um, reporting to the CEO, you know, who may not actually have any technical background. And they need to see what the threat model, what the landscape is, um, because they're the ones fundamentally making the decisions on what products to buy, on how to mitigate against these things, or accepting the risk. And if they accept the wrong risk, they may end up in prison one day. So I think that's a very useful tool is is having this kind of abstracted, but also very detailed approach. I think in particular, there's a, there's a program called Threadgile, which is very similar to this approach, actually, but focuses much more on threat modeling. So what um, is a guy called Christian Schneider that uh, basically wrote it. Uh, he presented it at DEF CON in 2020. And it's essentially a YAML-based system that you can map your data assets, you can map components at a higher level than data assets. You can also uh, map the communication links and then also the trust boundaries, which is the much larger kind of element that, you know, your C-suite board are not going to be really concerned with data assets and the communication links, but your your AppSec people are definitely going to it, as are your security researchers. But at the higher level, you then have this. Um, and I think it, it, it sounds like it would work amazingly hand-to-hand with C4 because you have, again, that, that layer of extraction, but actually from a more, much more focused development point of view. Am I right, Simon? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely correct. Uh, there's a really good blog post. Uh, if, if we have the ability to embed links in, in the podcast, I'll, I'll, I'll send you a link to that blog post. And it's written by a guy who works uh, here in the UK uh, for a, a, a very well-known company. And yes, they're using a combination of um, Stride and Lindun kind of compressed together because there's some overlap, of course. On top of the C4 model diagrams and in the blog post, he has an example of how he does that with his own website. But yeah, this, this company is doing the same thing. And it, you're right, it turns out that the different levels of C4 diagram allow you to see different risks. So the top level, it's very kind of integration type risks. As you dive down into containers, it's very, it's very much more um, data leakage and, and, and that sort of thing. But then you've also got the deployment architecture as well. So the C4 container diagram is deployment agnostic, which means you can then have a separate version of that for every deployment environment. So you can now do threat modeling on top of your staging and potentially target uh, and your production environments as well if you wanted to. So, yeah. Yeah, and I, I just want to really hone in on that point, right? It's it's both a best practice, but it is genuinely sometimes a legal concern in corporate spaces, and it still 
does not cease to surprise me when people are asked to do their security analyses, how absolutely manual they are doing those. Uh, when there is an opportunity to verify those threats, right? Because as a manager, the legal threat and also the loss of just developer time from not having an articulate understanding of what the boundaries are of my architecture, where the high risks are sitting, and exactly how I will remediate those when the time comes. You can only do that if you can articulately observe and communicate your architecture onward. And I think that's also a very good point. It, there's without these diagrams, and again, making them clear with endpoints, unless they are to the level of reality that I know the endpoints, it's probably not a real diagram. But if I have that, it also makes sure that it's much easier for me to onboard and contextualize any new engineers, which again in itself is reducing both energy and risk within that system. So I think I, I'm really curious to see what we can look at in a couple of years of maybe getting people to accepting this as not just a best practice, but the only practice, because we cannot continue. Our architectures are too large. They're made up of too many interoperating systems for a human brain to be able to articulately understand whether or not that system is stable or not. And if we add on my final thought here, which is always dependencies and vulnerabilities within that system, right? It's a constantly decaying massive architecture that no one can keep in their head. So putting it down into files that we can go in and make sure we know exactly where we need to tie into makes the biggest, biggest difference. So I think, I guess a really good question here is you provide a best practice to get people on that first step to digital transformation. Um, anecdotally, do you see a difference between uh, teams that take this on and perform very well or teams that maybe take on this practice? And are there any sort of operational limitations that make it so even if you have provided them a C4 model that's validated, sometimes they don't take the next steps? I'm curious if there's a disconnect in some companies or if this developer first, information first really makes a difference. It's it's kind of a hard question to for me to answer to be honest because most of the stuff i do with organizations is is i kind of go in there teach some c4 maybe we do some c4 diagrams for their systems and then i leave yeah. and occasionally i i do go back to the same companies but i'm going back because other 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 parts of the organization and other teams want to learn the same stuff that the other people are doing mm. and often it's a comment of oh that other team does really nice diagrams how are they doing it can we get that too please mm. so yeah it's 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 not really a question i can answer um i'm afraid but the anecdotal evidence I've kind of heard is it, it does make some improvements, especially around things like developer onboarding uh, and just yeah. having a, a much better clear view of what's going on. Yeah. One, one statistic that I'm really fixated on from the recent security supply, like supply chain report was that on average, managers are reporting that they are free of vulnerabilities and good on remediation 3.5 times more than the developer doing that labor, right? So I think when I, when I think about this kind of problem, I refer to it as technical empathy. Does everyone who engages with this architecture have enough technical empathy to be able to look at and take care of any bruises that come up in that architecture? Uh, and I yeah. think that is very hygienic across the board for, for the end user. Yeah. And I, I guess on a related note, this is why you'll see many organizations focusing on uh, software bills and material now. 
Because when things like the OpenSSL vulnerability pops up or log for shell or the spring thing, if if people don't know they're using those things, there's no action they can they can possibly, you know, perform to 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 remedy them. Exactly. And and sometimes I'll get the argument that well, automation is improving. Um, and it is, but the reason why we still have about 30, 33% of vulnerable downloads of log4j right now is because they're hidden parts of people's architecture that they literally just don't know are there. It's in a jar or in an Uber jar. And that would not have happened if someone had taken the time to communicate what was built when it was built. And I think that's a real shame. Agreed. And lots of transitive dependencies, people don't realize they're using it, but it's, it's crept in there somewhere. Yeah. And you can even remove it and pull it in because you didn't know that it was still part of your ingestion pathway. And, and really, you cannot get good at doing supply chain security until you get good at genuinely understanding how to do your source code security. And you can't do source code security if you don't know what your source code looks like. This sounds very simple, and I'll say it again, but observability is the foundation of good security, good development, and probably retention at the end of the day. I'm more likely to stick around and develop something if I know what I'm developing. And I can tell you that because anecdotally, right, we've all worked in spaces where you jump in and maybe two senior engineers that were here seven years ago knew how it worked. No one else does. <laughs> yes, yeah. I've got two really interesting stories on on, on that. Now, it's a story one. Sometimes when I run my C4 workshops, uh, instead of using my little case study, which is a financial risk system, I say, draw me some pictures of your software. And often during the first iteration, we get these uh, these very nice looking layered component diagrams and all the arrows go downwards and it looks perfect and clean. I'm like, hang on a second. This is either the best team on the planet or something's up. And normally something's up. So what I do is, is I kind of ask the developers, go get the laptops and then we dig through the source code. And we'll try and find the things that they've drawn as boxes. So we'll try and find the arrows. And, and it turns out you have to add a bunch of arrows that they forgot to draw. Um, and when they when they draw all these arrows from like looking through their code base, yeah, sure, there are some arrows going down, but most of the arrows go up and sidewards and they loop around things and the whole thing is just not a mess. And it's a journey of discovery for these teams because often, and this has actually happened to me, a bunch of developers have stared at this horrible diagram that they've now created with all these weird dependencies. And someone will say, oh, when we change that thing up there, this thing breaks all the time and we never knew that it was connected. I'm like, yeah, of course it's connected. It says in your source code, but you you kind of have this simplified view of how your system works. So that's that's story one. Uh, story two, I got invited to do a workshop for a, a very well-known company, again, in the UK. And they wanted to send all of their senior architects along because they thought they'd get most value for money, of course. And uh, just to fill up the rest of the seats, they sent some of their junior developers because they thought it would be a good experience for them. So we, we do this workshop, and again, it, it's the same, draw some pictures of your software. And the architects, their diagrams were literally like three boxes, and that was all they could do. But the junior developers, although they'd not you know been involved in the system long, but they were involved in it on a day-to-day basis, their diagrams were much, much better. So yeah, those, those people who had been around for seven years, they did know how it worked seven years ago, and now because they're out of the technology, they're out of the code base, all they can say is, oh, we have a system and it does stuff. Yeah. Probably with .NET, but we're not quite sure. That's crazy. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy. <laughs> and it, it's a very normal story. I mean, totally. that's most yeah. of my career. It's terrifying. It's really <laughs> terrifying. Yeah. And it's on some of our like fundamental infrastructure. We have this problem because the like turnover of the average dev is like 
a little less than two years right now in the US market. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say about two years. Yeah. How are you going to maintain an understanding of an always changing source code without having that external to the minds that created it? I think that I think culturally developers are beginning to understand we're at that stage of maturity of understanding that having that centralized understanding of observability, communication, onboarding, we have not done that well as engineers because it hasn't been prioritized. That has been something that people have considered a form of sort of like documentation, right? And if it's documentation, a developer is allergic to it. And I agree. Yeah, this is boring. Yeah, documentation is boring, stupid, stale. I'm not going to do any of those things. I'm too smart and I'm too busy and I'd rather work on trying to get my thing to actually execute, right? Than talk about yeah, totally. what it does. And I think the really major difference is, and what's so powerful about this is that it aligns, it's the only documentation that I have never had a problem introducing to developers culturally because we understand exactly why we're going to add any annotations onto the system. There's no extra labor if we've accurately engaged with the architecture. There's zero extra labor, zero extra time. It allows you to have your mean time to remediation be immediate because you're not going to spend two weeks finding the bug. I was watching this hilarious like Java developer uh, like joke YouTube yesterday, and I just laughed so hard. And he was like, oh, you want me to fix this bug for you, not a problem. Turns around to his computer, it's like, give me two weeks to find it, right? Yeah, That's yeah, totally. still the situation that we're in, and that's yeah. such a waste. Yeah, I guess the pandemic made this worse because when everybody's in the office, if you don't know where something is, you can stand up and shout, does anybody know where this thing is in the code base? If, if you're stuck at home on different time zones and, and things, it's much, much harder. So yeah, I think the pandemic has encouraged people to consider this topic once again, which which is good. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Well, I think we've covered a little bit around a little bit around threat modeling, a little bit around developer culture. Um, I'm really interested as you're looking forward in the next, you know, three to five years, what is it that you're seeing sort of out there on the ground? Um, is there anything that you're seeing that surprises you or delights you about the ways that developers are changing their mindsets? And what is it that you hope to see in the next few years? Um, well, I mean, something I've seen over the past few years is, is people are backtracking. <laughs> so over the last five years, it's all been microservices, 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 uh, serverless, serverless, serverless. And I've seen lots of organizations jump on these things, go, oh, this must be amazing. And now they're going, oh, it's really hard and really complicated and it's really easy to, to build horribly fragile systems. So yeah, backtracking is, is what I'm seeing, which I think is a good thing. I think I think we're finally starting to realize that perhaps we should take decisions a bit more consciously uh, you know it's, it's very easy for software development teams to just jump on the new shiny um fashion-based thing but at the end of the day we, we you know we're building software for a specific reason not because it looks nice on our cvs and um yeah i think hopefully we'll we'll kind of swing the pendulum back maybe and uh hopefully reduce some of the fashion-led decisions i see teams making i like that fashion-led development. That's probably the biggest thing I've seen, apart from AI and ML and all, all the other stuff, yeah. Yeah, well, I hope to see it. I I got to fingers crossed because um, yeah. everything runs on software. And if we don't have any minds that know what that software is, we're not going to succeed. But I, I, I do think we're seeing a transition back to more monolith or just more simple or 
I think what's important here is to understand that it is not we're not moving to simplicity because it's easier. We're moving to simplicity because it's more functional and more secure. We are making the decision that's going to have the longest lifespan <laughs> so that you can get more of your time back because I think we're tired of patching microservices. Um, and uh, I think that's a good move. Um, and it allows us to have more sort of platform interoperability as well. But I think as we move into this new space, we are going to see over the next few years, and I'll do my part in this, um, we're going to see people move to having these verified architecture diagrams. Really, my personal next step is to see what I can do to secure most of Kubernetes and Kubernetes-related groups. And to do that, I'm teaching them how to develop these diagrams to a standard that can be interoperable with other open source packages. And I think that's my final sort of thought on this is that genuinely the difference between documentation and diagrams is that I can hand my diagram off to a project that I want to be working with or to a developer team that I want to be working with and know before we spend developer time what problems we might run into or even if it's worth trying to engineer over. And I think if managers really understood that what you were doing is saving yourself months of decision time, this would be adopted already. <laughs> yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, I was just going to say on that on, on that pendulum swing thing, you know, 20 years ago, it was all about big design up front and teams would spend months and months and months trying to do the stuff you're doing. And then Agile came along and kind of pulled lots of stuff together that happened before it. And teams forgot all of that important stuff and they started rushing into making decisions and, and in some cases literally just writing code from day one. So yeah, that's the other nice thing I'm seeing. There is a, a pendulum swing back to teams slowing down a little bit, not going back to what we were doing 20 years ago, but slowing down a little bit to figure out, is this the right direction? Do we have a good starting point? And does it, you know, is it a risky solution from a security or performance or scaling perspective? So Simon, I've got one last question for you. You know, we've talked about quite a few different topics today, you know, as Sal just kind of quickly recapped, but I think under the lens of what we've discussed, what do you think like a good development looks like? What do I think a good development looks like? Wicked good development. What does that look like? Oh, wicked good development. <laughs> a wicked good development. Oh, do, I mean... For me, it's it's having a good starting point. So, I mean, this is this is the stuff I teach people all the time. It's it's about make sure you you understand the important things that are driving the decisions you're making. And again, that's something that seems to have forgotten how to do over the past couple of decades. So, this is your important requirements, quality attributes, constraints of the environment you're sitting in, and the principles that you want to adopt as a set of developers. So, you know, before you start writing thousands and thousands of lines of code, for example. Let's agree on how we're going to do modularization or packaging or how we're going to do structure and how we're going to do error handling and logging and those sorts of things. So even just some of that basic stuff, teams skip over and then you've got lots of different inconsistent approaches to solving the same problems. So for me, that definitely fits in inside of this. It's, it's let's make sure that as a team, we are actually working as a team and we've agreed upon a set of stuff. And that doesn't mean we can't change that set of stuff, but let's change it in agreement and let's change it for justified reasons. So yeah, I, I definitely factor all that stuff in. Um, I want to see teams doing much better communication, hence all the stuff we've been talking about today, of course. And it, it's all it's all the same sort of stuff we've seen before. You know, um, the team should be really good at automated infrastructure provisioning, deployment, automated testing, and all of that good stuff. And of course, this doesn't need to be just developers. This is a, a wider view of a software development team, of course. 
So yeah, I don't think there's there's anything too unusual in my definition there, but it, it's really, I want to pull some of the architecture stuff in uh, and give teams a better starting point than that perhaps they might've been doing over the past decade or so. Absolutely. Beautiful. Well, I couldn't have wrapped that any better myself. Well, Simon, Sal, Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Till next time. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Wicked Good Development brought to you by Sonatype. Our show was produced by me, Katie Gregg. If you value our open source and cybersecurity content, please share it with your friends and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Check out our transcripts on Sonatype's blog and reach out to us directly with any questions at wickedgooddev at sonatype.com. See you next time. Thank you.